You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. And we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Well, good morning. Oh, it's hot. How's it going? You guys doing well? Yeah, you look good. My name is John. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm honored and excited to be with you, especially in this context, as we actually take a moment to pause from our current series of the book of John and prepare ourselves for this season of Lent, but ultimately leading us to Easter. And as Pastor Travis said a moment ago, Lent is a 40-day church rhythm, and it's a rhythm of repentance. It's a rhythm of renewal, which is meant to lead us to the heart of the gospel as we prepare for Easter. And the reason why this is important and this season is important because if you and I simply show up to a Sunday Easter service without taking in consideration, having never considered any other part of the gospel story, well, Jesus' suffering, his death is merely assumed. And what Lent does is it brings to light this crucial piece of the story Jesus' suffering, his death. And more than that, like every aspect of the gospel story, it's not something to be merely observed or analyze, we have to understand how Jesus' death and His resurrection brings those who follow Him also into death, and also into newness of life. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to launch a new series next week entitled Dying to Live, and we're going to discuss those things in more detail. So our task this morning is to launch together this church rhythm, and we'll do so by looking at Luke chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 9. And if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can also go on there and go to events, and you'll see our church, Grace Point Church Northwest. Click on that, and it'll have all the slides, it'll have the, everything, you can take notes right there on your phone. Um, and we also have Bibles outside those doors. Feel free to get up and grab one if you'd like one. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. You there? Okay, a couple of you are. That's good. Good job. It says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, my goal this morning is to help make sense of this text, both practically and relationally, especially in regards to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus, not nominally or culturally, but what does it truly cost to be a follower of Jesus? And surrender to Jesus, not only as Savior, but also as Lord. So tell me, what does it cost to follow Jesus? Now, we'll answer that question in a moment. And before we dive in our text, let's just take a moment to pray together. God, we love You and we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Lord, I pray that You'll get to areas in our heart that have been calloused. Lord, as You soften our heart to a greater understanding of the Gospel, stir our affections for Jesus. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. For you are my rock and my redeemer. Love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
let's be honest. Life, life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is busy and it's chaotic. It's full of responsibilities. It's full of expectations. And we long for healthy routines. We try to plan for the unexpected only to be surprised when the unexpected arrives. And despite these facts, the majority of Americans, the majority of people, well, we make these uh, resolutions at the beginning of the year. Did anybody, did anybody make a resolution at the beginning of the year? If you don't want to raise your hand, it's okay. You just follow along with me, okay? <laughs> I'm the only one. But a lot of people, they make resolutions at the beginning of each year to, to improve their life, to try to not get surprised by these life like unexpected things, the messes of life. We resolute to do things like to do better financially, to not eat out as much, to get into better shape. That was mine and I failed. I got into a shape, pear shape, but not in shape. <laughs> we also make spiritual resolutions. We resolute to pray more, attend community group, to dust off our Bibles and read the whole thing in a year. And all of which are really good goals. But here's the reality. It's the end of February. And I would wager to say that most of us have failed at these resolutions. Maybe you read up to Leviticus in your Bible reading plan. You got to chapter 5 and you're like, it's really hard to have a quiet time when you're reading about which bugs to eat and not eat. And so now dust is collecting on your Bible as it's on the shelf again. The last time you went to community group was actually the first time you went to community group because it's really hard and weird. And let's just be honest. I mean, I could speak for myself and and sometimes in the busyness and the chaos of life, life is hard. It's more convenient to go through McDonald's drive through get a double quarter pounder than it is to go home and make a salad. It's easier to choose comfort over serving. It's easier to choose Netflix over relationships. We have good intentions, but in the busyness of life, our resolves, they fade away. And we fall again back into unhealthy rhythms of life. Now in our passage this morning, in Luke chapter 9, there's three guys here who resolve to, they resolute to follow Jesus. These dudes, they say, yes to Jesus, and they're excited. But Jesus, well, He rejects them. He turns away. It seems as though in our text, Jesus has given these guys and giving us every reason why we should not follow Him, which is crazy. Because when I read this text in preparation for this morning, I was confused. I've read many a church planning books. I've been to the, the church conferences on growth and leadership and well, discipleship strategy of convincing people not to follow Jesus was never the, the keynote speaker's main point. You would think Jesus would have a different game plan, right? Like, come on Jesus, you're not selling this. Maybe you should instead build a more engaging gathering. Maybe hire a branding guy so that you can increase your marketability and appeal of being your disciple. Maybe do a raffle. Give away an all-inclusive vacation to somebody so they might come hear you preach. You see, Jesus doesn't respond like we do. He instead gives these guys and gives us every reason why we should not follow Him. And to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to go back to verse 51. So turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, because it's here that we get the immediate context of what's happening. It's where the stage is set for these three conversations that are about to take place. Verse 51 says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This verse, verse 51, is a major turning point in Luke's gospel. This is a, a hinge point because everything in Jesus' life was building up to this moment. The road to Jerusalem that Jesus was on was a road that was paved with suffering that ultimately ended in death. 
And the reality that awaited Jesus in Jerusalem was looming large in back of Jesus' mind. And these words taken up in verse 51 literally speak to Jesus' betrayal, His suffering, and His death. And Jesus in verse 52, He says, He sent out messengers ahead of Him who went and entered villages of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. See, Jesus here, He's sending out helpers. He's sending out people in His name to proclaim the Gospel message. To proclaim the fact that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world. And what happens next is extremely significant. Verse 53. says the people did not receive Him. In other words, they rejected the Gospel message. They rejected Jesus. And they rejected His followers. Now with this in mind, we can look at verse 57 with a little bit more understanding that Jesus was sending out people to proclaim the good news of the Gospel on a road that's marked with suffering and ends in death and people were being rejected. And so we can look at verse 57 with the understanding that Jesus was talking to these three guys about being sent. About representing Jesus as disciples who were sent to make more disciples. And we can tell from these conversations that Jesus was, was having with these dudes that Jesus was trying to talk them out of going. You see, listen closely. This paragraph... The text under consideration this morning is more for us in this room than those outside this walls that we would have gospel conversations with. What we must understand is that Jesus insists that following Him does not simply mean merely imitating Him, but entering into the very conditions of His life. And so Jesus here, He's asking His disciples, He's asking us if we know what we've gotten ourselves into. Look at verse 57 again. As they're going along the road, remember, a road headed towards death, marked with suffering. As they're along this road, someone said to him, see, now enters into the scene, the first applicant for the job, and he says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I know I've said this before, and as a pastor, I've heard this said more times than I can count. Pastor, I don't want to do business as usual. I'm tired of messing around. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do whatever Jesus would ask me to do. This guy is eager. He's willing. I'll follow you wherever you go. He says with tears in his eyes, I'm done with one foot in and one foot out. Whatever you ask of me, wherever you call me, I'll go. I'll do it. And we know from other Gospel accounts, specifically Mark's Gospel, that this man was a teacher of the law. He was a scribe. And what these men would do, it was customary for them to attach themselves to other teachers, specifically teachers that were popular, and they did this in order to gain notoriety, to gain reputation and popularity. And at this time, Jesus was a pretty popular teacher with those around Him. So it was perfect, seemed like a good candidate for this man's cultural agenda. But Jesus knew that following Him wasn't going to be easy. Jesus knew that this road ultimately ended in death, and so He knew that with such a casual declaration to follow Him, that this guy had no, like He wasn't going to make it. He knew that this guy was going to struggle, and so He sharply countered, and I believe it was a loving uh, counter in verse 58. Jesus replies to him this. He says, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. What in the world is he talking about? 
In other words, when things get tough for a fox and the hunters are after him and there's arrows flying and the dogs are chasing and barking, that that fox has a hole that he could run into and, and get away. When the weather gets bad for the birds and the wind is blowing and the rain is following, those, those dudes have nests that they could chill in. Right? But Jesus says, the one that you are committing to follow has none of that. I don't have any of those things. See, Jesus is saying that at times those who would follow him would be literally homeless. They would undergo immense discomfort. But even more than that, Jesus was telling this teacher of the law and he's telling you and he's telling me, that if you walk with Him, you will sense that the world is not your home. There will be dissonance, discomfort, unease, and rejection. To follow Jesus, one must embrace a life of discomfort. And like I said earlier, I don't believe that this was simply just a rebuke by Jesus, but I think this was a loving warning of what it looked like to follow Jesus. The cost to follow Jesus. This man was eager. He was willing but apparently Jesus thought he was a little too eager. Think about it like this. Just like a speed bump in the parking lot is meant to slow down a a, a driver who's driving too fast and maybe is careless, Jesus here is that speed bump from this man and He lovingly confronts him. And that leads us to three points, three questions I want to ask you this morning. Three questions in truth that we must consider and will ultimately reveal whether or not we have truly surrendered to Jesus and whether or not we're truly following Him. Number one, if you're taking notes, will you choose comfort or the cross? Will you choose comfort or the cross? Jesus is making it clear in this text that Christianity is not a path to greater comforts, to a higher status, to a life of ease. The road that Jesus walked and the road He calls His followers is not paved with the prospect of self-advancement, but rather this road is paved with the demand of self-denial. Remember, this road that Jesus was on ended in a cross. And this man is saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. And yet he has no clue what he's saying. Church, no one who commits to following Jesus does and does so lives a life of ease. No. The only certainty that we have on this road of following Jesus is, is the good news. Not that we'll have comfort. Not that we'll have ease. Not that we'll have health or wealth or prosperity or success. But the, the good news on this road marked with suffering that ends in death is that Jesus will be with you on this road. He'll never leave you. He'll never walk out on you. So tell me, is that enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? I ask this gut-wrenching question because there's many who would have us to believe that following Jesus will inevitably end with health and wealth and prosperity and success. And people are following Jesus to obtain the very thing that Jesus has called His followers to forsake. And Jesus wants us to know that following Him is just as likely to cost you material wealth as it is to, to produce it. Church, do you want the King? Or do you just want His kingdom? Is Jesus enough? Because here's the truth. Jesus wants to be your master. He does not want to be your meal ticket. Following Jesus will cost you. Pastor and theologian Kent Hughes comments, he says, no one who commits to following Jesus lives a life of ease. No one. If your Christianity has not brought you discomfort in your life, something is wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people. The discomfort of giving until it hurts. 
The discomfort of putting oneself out for the ministry of Christ and the church. The discomfort of a life out of step with modern culture. The discomfort of being disliked. The occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. But Christ's rewards far outvalue anything lost by following Him. This reminds me of what Jesus said to His disciples earlier in Luke chapter 9, specifically verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. And Jesus says the same thing several chapters later in Luke chapter 14 to a group of people gathered around Him. In verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot, cannot be My disciple. Clearly, Choosing the cross over comfort is a requirement of following Jesus. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German activist and and, and theologian, he wrote, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. And for Bonhoeffer, the call to follow Jesus literally ended in death. Martyrdom. Now Christ's call to you and to me may not cost us our physical lives. However, the cost is no less expensive. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. I'm reminded of the story of the Spanish explorer Cortez. On April 21st, 1519, Cortez and his small army landed in what is now Veracruz, Mexico. His mission was to conquer the mighty Aztec Empire and claim the land and its abundant treasures for Spain. Upon their arrival, the men unloaded their horses. They unloaded the cannons and other supplies from the ships. Then to their astonishment, Cortez had the fleet of 11 ships set aflame and burned. It was a dramatic statement to his grossly outnumbered army that there would be no turning back. With no means of retreat, there was only one direction in which to move. Forward, inland, to meet whatever it is that might come their way. Friends, tell me. Are there any ships docked at the shore of your life to give you a means of escape from the demands of Christian discipleship? This morning, I stand to tell you that if you're going to follow Jesus, you must burn your ships. It will cost you everything to follow Him. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to burn your idols of comfort? To burn your idols of ease for the sake of the mission? For the sake of the advancement of the Gospel in a city that is in, is in so much need? Are you going to choose the comforts of the world or are you going to choose the cross of Christ? Number two. You guys doing okay? Alright. Number two. Are you content with culturally following Jesus or are you willing to sacrifice for the urgency of the mission? Are you content with culturally following Jesus Are you willing to sacrifice for the urgency of the mission? Verse 59, Luke chapter 9. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Sounds like a reasonable request. And scholars have debated whether or not this guy's dad had actually died. I tend to believe that his father's corpse was not laying at home waiting for him to get there. And the reason why I believe that is because the son would have already been at home because it was his religious duty. It was his cultural obligation to be there. So perhaps the man had a father who was close to death. And he was saying to Jesus that, man, I'd rather wait. That way I can take care of my religious obligations, my cultural obligations, and and I'd rather wait so I can get my inheritance. And then when that's all done, I will follow you. Look how Jesus replies in verse 60. 
Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What? Doesn't that seem harsh? What in the world does Jesus mean, let the dead bury their own dead? You go, proclaim the kingdom of God. Clearly, when we follow Jesus, there is some sort of urgency that accompanies the command for every follower to proclaim the good news of the Gospel. To go and make disciples. Urgency. At first glance, like I said, Jesus' words, they seem harsh and sensitive. Even off base. Like, whoa, bro, like, calm down. But as I study this text, I don't think this was the case. He obviously saw that this man had no idea the importance of the mission. They, he saw that this man was obviously procrastinating. Like, I'm doing my religious obligations. I'm doing what I'm supposed to. But hold on. He didn't understand the urgency of the mission that Jesus was on. And you see, you have to understand that to the Jew, one of the most important um, duties is to give a proper, proper burial to their departed relatives. And none, under normal circumstances, it would have been uh, immoral for a man to abandon his father at his funeral. But Jesus, showing by His words that what was happening, this mission in redemptive history, going to the cross in Jerusalem was so urgent that it even superseded the normal importance of the burial customs of the culture of the day. Jesus says, right now, go. The kingdom of God is at stake and the only place for you to be is on the front lines of the kingdom. Jesus is saying to this man in verse 60 that the urgency of what you want to do, the urgency of what you think you need to do, this is more important than all of that. Now go. Proclaim the Gospel. Let the spiritually dead bury the dead. Why don't you go do something that has eternal significance? Why don't you go and do something that's life-altering? World-changing. Why don't you go spend your life making disciples? Why don't you spend your life proclaiming the Gospel? That's a life that is working with eternal significance. There's plenty of spiritually dead people who can take care of the religious tradition. There's plenty of spiritual dead, spiritually dead people that can take care of all the tasks empty of eternal significance. Again, number two, are you content with culturally following Jesus? Or are you willing to sacrifice for the urgency of the mission? Are you willing to give up your plans, your priorities, your dreams so that you might leverage your life for the sake of the mission that we have been given by Jesus to go and make disciples? Or are you content to maintain a cultural Christian existence of attending church twice a month? That's the average. Living your life, pursuing your plans, your priorities, your dreams, your desires. Jesus is telling us, look, if you're going to follow me, your dreams, your priorities, your plans are going to change. Praise God that they change. His plans for our life is so much greater than ours. He says you'll leave whatever comfort zone you're in that's prevented you to live this life of following Jesus. And your life will be spent leveraging it, your life for the sake of the Gospel. For the sake of the mission. So tell me, are you living a life as a follower of Jesus with urgency? I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, in which Jesus tells His disciples, He says, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. This verse breaks my heart. Why is this so? How can this be? Why are we not out in the fields? Why are we not doing this? We live in a city in which the number of people who do not know Jesus is overwhelming. 
just the other day, I took my son to the doctor and I had an opportunity to speak to the receptionist. And, and you wouldn't believe it, but she said, I've lived in Las Vegas for many years and this is the first time I've actually talked to a Christian. I blew my mind. She said, this is the first time anyone stopped to tell me what you just told me. I couldn't believe it. And as I think of this verse, it says the harvest is abundant. The workers are few. Even in this building, the, the harvest is abundant. I read a quote this, this week that said that 80-something percent of people who come to faith in Jesus do so between the ages of 4 and 14. And we're struggling to get somebody just to go back there and teach kids about Jesus. It blows my mind. The harvest is abundant just in our community here, let alone outside of these walls. Why? This conversation I had with this young lady at the doctor's office forced me to reevaluate my daily interactions. I couldn't believe that she had never heard about Jesus before. And I began to ask myself this question, and I want to propose it to you as well. What is it that I'm doing that a spiritually dead person can do just as effectively? How much of what I am doing in my life can get done and get done just as well by someone who is spiritually dead, who does not know Jesus, who does not have the power of the Holy Spirit living within them? See, Jesus said to this guy, and He says to us, go let the spiritually dead people take care of those religious traditions. Why don't you, who have been made alive in Christ, who has been given the power of the Holy Spirit, why don't you go and do something of eternal significance? This leads us to the third and final conversation and third and final point I have this morning. Number three, will our lives be marked by an undivided heart and a focus on Jesus? An undivided heart and a focus on Jesus. The final conversation in our text is probably the hardest one of the three, believe it or not. And I know this is been hard to hear and I appreciate the way you're listening. I hope you're, you're doing alright, but this is what the text says. <laughs> the final conversation our text, verse 61 of Luke chapter 9. says, Yet an, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. As the ancient farmer would plow a field he would pay careful attention to what he was doing in order to plow a straight line, right? He probably wouldn't even look at the ground, but look ahead so that his line would be straight. And the unfocused farmer would constantly look, at, look back to see how far he has gone and look forward to see how much further he had to go. And putting one's hand to the plow and looking back became a proverbial way to describe a person who wasn't really committed to the task. There's some books that I have to read and I'm constantly looking, okay, how much have I read? How much do I have to go? I just don't want to read that book. <laughs> but it's okay. Do you get it though? You can't plow a straight line looking back. So Jesus, he's using this agricultural idiom to say to the would-be disciple and to say to us that you cannot follow Jesus with your feet in one direction and your face in another. Like a farmer plowing his field, a follower of Jesus must only look ahead. And the only thing I could think of in this moment, to put it in our kind of modern context, would be, it's just like texting and driving. <laughs> you can't really text and drive really well. So don't do that. Okay. Sidebar. <laughs> yeah. A.W. Tozer says that people who are crucified with Christ have three distinct marks. Number one, they're facing only one direction. Number two, 
They can never turn back. Number three, they no longer have plans of their own. So tell me, this morning, where is your focus? Are your eyes fixed upon Jesus, or are they fixed upon yourself? Are your eyes fixed upon Jesus, or are they fixed upon your sin? Are your eyes fixed upon the kingdom of God, or upon your own kingdom? Are you focused on your own plans, your own priorities? Are you focused on God's plans for your life? Does God have your whole heart? Or is it divided like a piece of pie in which you have it segregated? And God can have this portion, but the rest is mine. You see, all three of these guys, they're putting conditions on following Jesus. Conditions. And this text clearly shows us that we do not have the option of following Jesus on our own terms. That's never been presented to us. When we follow Him, He has our heart more than anyone and more than anything. That's why Jesus says in, later in Luke chapter 14, He says the love that you have for your wife and your kids and your mom and your dad and, and the love you have for the relationships closest to you should look like hate in comparison Jesus. But if we're honest, and though it may be hard to say this or out loud, but there's so many things less than those relationships even that compete for our affections. This is a very popular quote. You've probably heard it a million times, but it fits perfectly. In C.S. Lewis, he says it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, this shouldn't be. We worship the one true God who is the King of kings, the defender of the weak, the father of the fatherless, the rescuer of the helpless. He does not need us. We need Him. He is the Savior of the world, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. May we trust in Him and submit to Him not only as Savior, but as Lord moving from dead in our sin to alive in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would grow in our likeness of Jesus, that we would live this life with an undivided heart, completely focused on the mission that He's given to us as followers of Him to spread the good news of the Gospel, to make disciples of Jesus here in Las Vegas in the world. May we be people who have been rescued, delivered, provided for and saved that we would embrace the cross of Christ, that we would choose to sacrifice for the urgency of the mission of the Gospel, that we would be a people marked by undivided hearts and extreme focus on making disciples of Jesus. As we look forward to the day when this road paved with suffering ends and we stand before Jesus face to face and give Him the glory. Friends, this is worth giving your lives for. And though it may be the hardest thing you ever do, it's the best thing you could ever do because there's so much grace found in this call to die. There's newness of life found in this call to die. And even more than that, Jesus is worthy. May we, Grace Point Church Northwest, be a church that is known for being centered on the Gospel of Jesus Christ and sold out ashamedly, unashamedly to the mission of making disciples. And I pray that this season of Lent would be marked by us pursuing Jesus and His mission with everything we've got.